You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Lions fans. It's time for the podcast you've been waiting for. The show where Kool-Aid runs blue, faces turn red, and rose-colored glasses never go out of style. This is the Detroit Lions Podcast. Welcome to the Daily DLP. I'm your host, Ash Thompson. Yesterday, I looked at the Atlanta defense and suggested a few specific things the Lions needed to accomplish to win. Today, I'm going to do the same thing with the Falcons defense. Yesterday, I discovered that I say that word weird. The Atlanta defense is the brainchild of one Ryan Nielsen. That's who Atlanta hired after the retirement of their previous coordinator, Dean Pease. So... What can I tell you about the defense of Ryan Nielsen that has existed for two whole games? I'll start with the background of the coach, because it makes my conclusion at the end make a lot of sense. He's a defensive line coach by trade, and he's been with the Saints for five years. He took the assistant head coach job after Dan Campbell vacated that role to come to Detroit and coach the wonderful Lions team that we all know and love. The Saints have been fighting to keep Nielsen in the fold for years. They promoted him all the way up to co-defensive coordinator for the 2022 season. And they finally lost him this year to a team that's had to play against teams he's been coaching multiple times per season in the same division. That is a pretty good indicator generally that uh, a guy is a pretty good coach when someone else in the division snipes him for a promotion. Do the players like him? Have you ever heard of Cam Jordan or Trey Hendrickson? Or David Onimeda. Now, that last one, maybe not. But the first two, you've probably heard those names. These are guys who credit Nielsen as a huge part of their development as professionals. Jordan went so far as to post videos on social media thanking Nielsen and wishing him well on his new job at a division rival when he left. Uh, Hendrickson has publicly said that Nielsen was a huge part of of getting him through the first three seasons where things just were not clicking and he was not having a good time in the NFL, getting him through that to the place where he could sign a $60 million contract with the Cincinnati Bengals as a free agent. Well, Nielsen came in this offseason and has wasted no time revamping the Atlanta defense. That team had cap space, second most in the NFL, and needed to drastically improve their defense in order to have any chance of taking a step as a team. So, they added defensive lineman Calais Campbell. They brought Onomato over. They 
added those two to Grady Jarrett, and that is their base defensive front. Uh, to the linebacker core, they added Caden Ellis, who also came over from the Saints. He's basically Atlanta's Alex Anzalone, for lack of a better analogy. They traded for former third overall pick cornerback Jeff Okuda to play across from A.J. Terrell. But if you're watching this, you know that that is A, not a great thing to trade for, and B, that he's been injured this entire time and he hasn't really played up until this point of the year. So he hasn't done much. But the cherry on top is the other thing that they added to their secondary, and that's all-pro safety Jesse Bates. Uh, he's been their difference maker. He is the reason that their defense is working out of all of these moves. He's a ridiculously good player making a massive difference. So anyway, the reason that I say there are only two games of tape on this defense, which makes it a little hard to draw any like really tight conclusions because that's just not enough. Six out of the 11 players are new starters and they have a new coordinator. Nothing they did schematically last year matters. Honestly, I, I didn't even look at it as far as, as, as this particular <laughs> video goes. But with all of that said, like it's not enough tape to draw huge conclusions, but I'm going to draw some conclusions anyway, because that's what we do here. Um, I'm going to tell you what they've shown in two games. Up front, strong, mean, is how I would describe the Atlanta defense. Uh, they split their time in between 3-4 and 4-3 run defense concepts, uh, but it's not an even split against 12 personnel. That's one running back, two tight ends, 12. See how that goes. Okay. It's the personnel the Lions really like to run the ball over. That's why I'm mentioning it here. Uh, gets Sam Laporta and Brock Wright on the field for blocking. They do that all the time. Basically, against that, they have two pass rushers on the edge and three big down linemen. That's the, the formation that against 12 personnel they tend to play out of. Think James Houston and Aiden Hutchinson on the outside with Kamish, Levi, and a limb inside this year. That's And you've got a pretty good picture of what Atlanta's defense is going to look like. Uh, those big nasty down linemen have been playing a two-gap style run defense. That's when the defensive lineman comes off the ball straight at an offensive lineman, stacks him up, and tries to shed him to get towards where the ball is going. The idea there is that it leaves linebackers free to flow to the ball and be the ones who end up racking up the tackle stats. Uh, some defenses are trying to break through a wall that the offense is building, and some are trying to build a wall that the offense has to break through. This style of defense is building a wall and basically just trying to clog everything up. That's, that's how their defense works on early downs and short yardage. That's how the Atlanta defense works. Now... That doesn't say that they don't get any penetration into the backfield, uh, because players like Calais Campbell and Grady Jarrett can march that wall right into the ball carrier's path. Uh, there's nothing inherently passive about this style of defense. It is still an attacking defense. It just attacks through as opposed to attacking around. But the important thing about this is engaging one or two blockers. That's the priority over getting past them. Like if you're pushing them, if you're pushing through them to get to the ball carrier, that's great. If you're running around them, you are leaving a massive hole in your defense to be exploited. 
But as we all know, the base defense of the NFL now is actually the nickel. And yes, I'm going to continue to explain all of these little things that I talk about just because while some of you have watched a ton of football, maybe some of you haven't. So what is the nickel? That's when there are five defensive backs on the field. One of the linebackers or linemen comes out in the case of the Atlanta defense. One of those big uglies comes off the field and they run a straight up four man, one gap defense. So rather than going directly at the lineman, they are now taking a shoulder or even specifically trying to avoid the blocker. It's not 100% on these two things. They'll occasionally enough to keep everybody honest line up as though they were going to do that two gap defense and explode through that line uh, or they'll line up the other way and and run some version of a two gap defense those two options are typically viewed as suboptimal although if anyone ever talks about a wade phillips style defense not a lot of teams really run those anymore but it was a three man line that ran primarily a a gap based defense but I digress, as as I do. <laughs> um, okay. The downside for them of their base defense is that the biggest defensive lineman on Atlanta's roster is Grady Jarrett at 305 pounds. Now, that three-man line is the same style of defense that Matt Patricia ran. And if you'll recall, he kept trying to bring in big, big dudes to block up the middle of that field. There's a reason for that, because two-gap involves power, just straight power. When he famously said at the Senior Bowl that everything comes from power, that's because in this type of defense, it does. Every single lineman is going through a guy, not around. So the, you know, three-technique gazelle that everyone kept screaming we needed to draft would never have seen the field. Because this is all the Matt Patricia ran. Because they don't have those big uglies, they just have uglies. I'm sorry, Mr. Jareth, I don't mean that personally. <laughs> but because they don't have the size that is typically associated with running a two-gap defense, they're giving up almost five yards per carry on first down. So... A thing that the Lions need to do to win this game is to, on first down, be in 12 personnel and run the ball. That's something that they like to do anyway. That is a way that what the Lions do on offense matches up very well with what the Atlanta defense has been doing. David Montgomery would have had a day, man. Like, it would have been just one of those things where you're like, oh, that's this guy's coming out party. That's what he came here to do. So it is a damn shame. That that guy's on the injured list and probably not going to play this week. Like, and if he does play, he's not going to be himself with the injury that he sustained. There, there would be no way. Uh, in the past, though, the Lions have shown that when their offensive line is allowed to just line up and punch people in the mouth, it doesn't really matter that much who's in the backfield because nobody's getting back there to touch them. So this is an opportunity for Jameer Gibbs to shut everybody up. The Lions should be able to get him to the second level of the defense with some regularity. And that, my friends, is where he's going to show you why he was drafted in round one. Alabama did it constantly, where it's just like, okay, he's got two yards and gone. Hopefully, 
That's what we see from the Lions this weekend. But if we do not, Greg Reynolds has also shown that if you get him working on safeties and corners, he's also going to have a very good day. So behind those big guys, what is the defense doing? Well, Falcons are right in the middle of the league, running about 75.6, exactly 75.6 zone, and 23.6 man coverage. And what are the snaps that are not in those two groups? You'd have to ask PFF what's happening on those ones that are neither man or zone. I'm assuming something happens and they're not defined. And this is good for the Lions, because the Lions' top two receivers, Amon Ross St. Brown and Josh Reynolds, have been equally good against zone or man coverage. But the rest of the group have zero combined receptions against man coverage this year. That's Marvin Jones, Khalif Raymond, and Antoine Green have put up in two games a collective goose egg of receptions versus man coverage. So it's possible that the Falcons may look at this and lean into that. But what they've done so far... It's over 75% zone coverage, which, like I said, that's about normal for an NFL defense. When they're using their 3-4 front, they have been running a single high safety defense, often in cover 3. Cover 3 defense gives the two linebackers and the strong safety kind of that middle of the field range, that like 5 to about 15 yards zone. Uh has the free safety and the two corners, each with deep zones at the back. Hopefully that helps. Probably going to go over all of these things in a future episode when I get a little bit better using the animation program. Because me just talking about it sounds like the worst episode of all time. Uh, But what that does is it leaves all five possible pass rushers of their defense rushing the passer. You need to be able to block up one-on-one. Basically, you need your five linemen to be able to handle their five pass rushers to get some mismatches on that type of defense. Uh, what is good news is that it looks like Jeff Okuda is ready to play, and he may have received some kind of coaching this offseason that fundamentally changes what kind of player he is, but Aubrey Pleasant and Aaron Glenn could not get him to be even halfway decent at any kind of cover three coverage. It's not a huge part of what they run, but he sucked at it. I have no ill will towards Jeff Okuda, but if he is playing this weekend, the Lions need to put the ball in his area and just see. Early and often, out of 12 personnel. They know which of their receivers he struggled against in practice after facing him for two years. Put that guy out there and get the ball downfield to that guy. That needs to be it. Just a massive part. And uh, while they're doing that, I mean, Falcons are going to be expecting that. They need to be putting something into Jesse Bates' zone in the middle to keep him occupied while they're doing that. They have to keep him away from where he might be able to help with the trouble that Jeff Okuda is going to have. And that means getting Sam Laporta upfield in the middle. So Bates has to defend that or it's a touchdown. That's, that's the thing. You have to make his choice either helping Jeff Okuda and allowing a possible touchdown in the middle of the field or letting Okuda die on the vine, basically. And the good news is, if Okuda doesn't do that well, as he has not previously, 
and he gets yanked. Uh, Trey Flowers, the corner who has been playing well, Okuda is hurt, has also been playing terribly. Uh, his PFF grade so far this year is in the 40s, man. And that is like, you don't want that as your backup, let alone the guy who's starting. But it also indicates they've given him the opportunity to get burned. Uh, so there's a reasonably good chance in either case that whatever you're doing, you need to be targeting the guy who is across from AJ Terrell. And that's a very long winded way to get to a very obvious thing, uh, <laughs> but it's why in this case, it's so important to do that. And the way that you do that is by keeping Bates busy in the middle of the field in cover three and using your knowledge of the specific corner, Jeff Okuda to determine who is the person you're stressing him with. The other weak spot in the secondary is Richie Grant, who has not historically been an awful player. This is his third year in the league, had some rough days as a rookie, was actually pretty good as a second year player, but they brought Bates in and he gets all the, what's the word I'm looking for? Glamorous safety work. (laughs) Grant gets to do all of the hard stuff. He gets to be Cam Chancellor in this defense and he's, uh, Only about 200 pounds. So we'll see how that goes for them over the year. But right now he's healthy. He's contributing. Basically, if you can figure out a way to run Sam Laporta through Richie Gratt's zone in a cover three into Bates's zone. um, That's probably your golden ticket in this game, because at this point, if Bates is trusting Grant, it's borderline negligent. <laughs> you, you know what I mean by that? He's he's just he's not played well, let's say. Uh, so trusting him to improvise and carry his guy down the field so that Bates could get over and possibly help out Okuda a little bit is a way to have a wide open guy streaking down the middle of the field. And Bates is going to know that. The reason Grant's an issue is because his usage has changed from last season where he played well, where he was spending a lot more time over the slot. And he was like 25 to 30% somewhere in that range. I don't remember what the exact number was, but he was just straight up being CJ Gardner Johnson. And that's kind of the same thing right now. He's playing out of his ideal spot as like, he's been a box safety 55% of the time. And a free safety 50, 50% of the time, approximately like just half and half with a couple slot snaps, as opposed to his previous, a lot of slot snaps. But just like we saw with CJ Garner Johnson, like even for a player like that, who is an incredible player, it took a part of two games for him to kind of get his feet underneath him and feel like he knew exactly where he was supposed to go. Of course, now he's hurt and he's gone, but that's that's we're not on that side of the ball today. Basically, what it comes down to is one of their corners isn't going to be able to hang by himself. And that undermines what Atlanta wants to do on defense against bigger formations. A huge way to do that is a tendency that they've shown in cover three so far this year is that when you motion a player from one side to the other, particularly a slot receiver or a like big tight end, like small tight end, basically like big slot from one side to the other, the nickel doesn't go with them. That then becomes a linebacker's coverage responsibility. And if you can get them in man, they have 
let their linebackers carry that guy down the field. And that is a huge mismatch. And they've been doing it, whether it's a slot receiver in that specific situation or a tight end. So there is an opportunity here using motion to get St. Brown on a linebacker. And that guy is dead. Uh, or Khalif Raymond even. Just go one side to the other. The, the not dangerous guy. <laughs> Raymond on a linebacker. Bluntly is a touchdown. If you can keep Bates at any other part of the field. So again, that's the thing. is You have to be threatening Bates constantly. With where you don't want the ball to go. Because if he's where you want the ball to go. He has two interceptions already this year. And that number goes up. He is such a dangerous player. In their secondary. But getting that deep shot to that player requires protection a little bit longer. Uh, man, JMO would have been real nice to have here uh, because he's he is the perfect player for doing that and making it look really bad and extremely painful. And it's a tendency of the defense that would be tough for them to break in any meaningful way mid game. But Raymond is almost as fast definitely not getting covered by a linebacker they can still do that so what can they do when the atlanta is in their lighter defensive package that's the four-man front attacking gaps instead of attacking linemen uh in that defense they use a lot more cover two which is two safeties over the top taking each half the field with two linebackers basically taking the middle zone corners are down here so there's gaps right here and right here you feel me? <laughs> that's that's how you attack a cover two defense. Um, using hand signals. Great audio for the podcast version. <laughs> two deep safeties, the linebackers, and also the nickel corner are at that mid-level. Corners tend to stick pretty close to the line of the scrimmage. Their job is just to mug the receivers and stop them from getting a free release. Uh, they also switch to this in their big front when they're in the red zone, basically. It just gives you more defensive backs in different areas. Something you don't see a lot of with a cover two shell over a two-man defense. But it's uh, it's become a little more popular in the league, and it is something that Atlanta does. Um, how you can tell when they're doing this is both safeties are off screen in broadcast footage, just so you know. Which, which thing they should be doing. If there's if you can see one of the safeties and he's like 10 yards off the line of scrimmage, they're probably in that cover three. If you can see neither of them, or if it's a bit of a wider shot, you can see both of them and they're at about the same depth. They're lining up like it's that cover two shell. Just a little watching trick if you want to live know what's likely to happen. Um, and the good news, gang, is that uh, Jeff Okuda sucked at this too. Uh, um, he wasn't great at a lot of things in Detroit, uh, but he was better at man than he was at zone. Basically, whether it's him or Flowers, the Lions still need to put the safety in a spot to make bad decisions and leave that guy on an island by himself. And there are known cover two beating tactics, basically. Like if you have two receivers on this side, one of them goes here, one of them goes here. They're both still in that safety zone. Nobody's really man covering that slot guy, so the safety has to deal with him. Whereas the guy who's 
just running down the side of the field has that corner. So it is the responsibility of that corner to not just let that guy go. Or that other safety has to come over, which means there needs to be a third guy coming up this way to keep that safety busy. And that was a lot of hand gestures. If you're watching the audio podcast, go check out the YouTube. <laughs> because it's, it's a little difficult to visually or audioly explain. Auditorily? We'll go with that. Now, these tendencies are not a 100% thing. Like the, the, the trickiest thing they'll do is they'll line up like they're going into that cover two coverage. And then they'll actually run cover three, which has the strong safety headed towards the line of scrimmage. This is the Tracy Walker special is how I like to refer to this one, because it, it, then you have a bullet heading toward his zone coverage. And if it's a run play, he's already sprinting towards the line. It also puts him in a spot where the quarterback doesn't expect him to be based on his pre-snap read, which is a big problem if the safety doing this is Jesse Bates. Because if Bates is in a spot where you don't expect him to be, to quote a movie from the, I believe it's the early 80s, it's game over, man. Game over. Yeah, I'm old. Uh, like I said, Bates has two picks on the season. And they use him in both of those safety roles. Just kind of flip him around. That's that's why it's the only reason Grant is kind of 50-50 on that free safety, strong safety thing. And does any of that stuff sound familiar to you? Uh, because it should. Because what I just described to you is basically the Detroit Lions defensive scheme with different names for the players. And Atlanta actually have the horses to run the thing. It's been going pretty well for them. Just with those, the few minor points, no, no defense is perfect. The perfect ones are the ones we talk about, like the 85 Bears, where every guy had like a, a Hall of Fame-ish year, if, if not career. But the ways you beat the Atlanta defense are to put their less gifted players in conflicts. Like get Laporta up against linebackers with pre-snap motion out of 12 personnel. If you're going to look to try to get deep in a hurry, get slot receivers into Bates' zone when he's deep out of lighter formations. Exploit the outside corner that is not A.J. Terrell, whoever that happens to be on any given snap, because that is the, the hole in the defense as a, as a group. Uh, on the ground, the Lions need to load up and maul that bigger formation uh, because Atlanta doesn't really have the guys to execute that one the way that they'd like to so far this season. They need to get Gibbs through that line untouched one way or another. Get that man in space against defensive backs. And the day is going to be a good one. I would lean zone concepts against that heavy formation and power concepts against the nickel defense. That, that would be my immediate instinct because the Lions run both of those well and switching back and forth tends to mess with the defense when they don't know what they're going to expect. So I've told you what you're going to see from Atlanta on Sunday. And I really hope I've told you what you're going to see from the Lions. That's my week. See you guys Monday. Let's bring it in here together. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Lions on three. One, two, three. Lions. You've had enough of that shit.